Beloved, beautiful words, beautiful hymns, beautiful lyrics. The uh, one beautiful hymn, among the many that we just sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The beginning words are, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not, they compassion, Thy compassions they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever wilt be. Now, we sing those words, and as Gary so often reminds us, we need to make sure that we own those words, we believe those words. And the question is, why do we believe the truths in those words that we sing? Is it because we have a burning in our bosom when we hear them or when we say them? Is it because our mother and father told them that they are true, ergo they are true? Is it because that's the consensus of uh, the world and society in which we live? Um, We know that's anything but the consensus. But even if it was the consensus, is that sufficient reason for us to say, therefore, they are true? Or is it something along the lines of, well, I don't know about you, but I believe it, so that is true for me. No, beloved, the reason that we believe the truths in those words we sing is because God tells us them. He teaches those. God has spoken. God has revealed his mind and his will in the pages of scripture with the truths that lead into those words. And it is because God has spoken. Let the earth hear his voice. I think in the last song we sang, because the voice of God and not a mere man has spoken, that is why we believe those words. Beloved, if you don't already have your Bibles in your hand, please take them into your hands. You may have come across, if you've traveled, a Gideon Bible in the desk drawer, or in the uh, drawer next to the bed in the hotel room. Many people have come to salvation by virtue of Gideon Bibles placed in those hotel rooms. And it is the Word, it is the Bible, it is the words in the Word of God that saves people. But in the Gideon Bibles, they have a magnificent introduction. And we don't need marketing. We don't need something to improve the Word of God. But I love the truths that the Gideon people have put into their Bibles. This is what it says in the opening introduction of the Gideon Bible. It says the Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is open and the gates of hell are closed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of treasure. It finishes out, It's given you in life, will be opened at judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred 
contents, end quote. Another magnificent statement about the Bible came from a 19th century Scottish preacher named Thomas Guthrie. And this is what Pastor Guthrie said. He said, the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons, a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. It's a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, and a balm for every wound. Rob us of our Bible, and our sky has lost its sun, end quote. Beloved, please take the Bible in your hand and open to Ephesians chapter 6. In our expositional journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesian believers, we find ourselves at the end of the letter in verses 10 through 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul describes the war we wage and the armor we wear. And we understand that this spiritual war, this holy war, this battle, this combat zone, it is not a physical fight. It's not a physical battle against flesh and blood. Uh, Paul tells us this in verse 12. Our verse this morning is the latter half of verse 17. I'll read verses 10 through 17 for the entire context. But in verse 12, Paul tells us it's not a battle and a fight against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle against the devil, against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And beloved, when we consider the enemy whom we fight, even if we go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, and we look at now, we realize that the enemy's strategy and the enemy's tactics have not changed through the channels of time. That still the enemy wants to undermine our confidence in the power and the authority and the veracity and the utility of the word of God, of the sword of the spirit that God has given us. Beloved, We understand that we need God-forged and God-furnished armor for this battle. Beloved, please listen as I read verses 10 through 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, 
these pieces of armor, six pieces of armor, six pieces of God-made, God-supplied equipment. There's the belt of truth, which gives us firmness, security, strength, and mobility. The breastplate of righteousness, which protects us, and it protects us against defeat when lust and opportunity coincide in the evil day. The shoes of readiness so that we can stand securely and move quickly in our defense and in our presentation of the good news of the gospel of peace to a lost and dying world. The shield of faith which protects the army of God and extinguishes the fires of the enemy. And our God-given ability to quickly apply what we believe by virtue of our faith. And what we covered last week is the helmet of our salvation. This is the salvation that we've already received when God saved us. And it is the salvation we confidently expect for the day when we, when we will be ushered into the presence of the Lord. Even as George Luker was yesterday morning. And this helmet instills fear in the heart of our foes. And it inspires confidence in the hearts of our friends. Well, that leads us to the sixth and final piece of armor, the sixth and final piece of equipment, and the one sole weapon that God provides to us, namely the sword of the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this interesting observation about these pieces of armor. He says, every other part we've been looking at provides a protection for the body as a whole or for an individual part of the body. But this isn't true of the sword of the Spirit. It is both defensive and offensive. It's not merely to repel or resist the enemy, but to be used by the child of God to cause the enemy to retreat. Beloved, that is a true statement about this unique and most wonderful last piece of equipment God gives us, and we need to know how to use it. I remember when I was in Southern California and taking Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I took a seminary friend of mine, Chris, to the Hicks and Gracie BJJ school that I was training at. And Chris was kind of a newbie, so the instructor had his brother, who was kind of an assistant instructor, take Chris off to the side to give him some one-on-one time. And remember, the, uh, the instructor's brother said, well, okay, let's just start with basics. So, you know, what's your fighting stance? And Chris said, well, when I have a disagreement with my wife, I usually just kind of go like this. <laughs> okay, well, you need to start. And by the way, I think Chris did enjoy it. I mean, he did have to excuse himself midway through the class to go out and deposit his spaghetti dinner into the parking lot. But I do think he enjoyed himself. And beloved, the point here is we need to know how to fight. We need to be ready to fight. We need to know how to use the weapon. You need to know how to use the weapon that has been handed you by your commanding officer. And that's why at the end of verse 17, he says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the command take at the beginning of verse 17 applies to this as well. So it's and take the sword of the spirit. So this command of urgency that Paul gives there ties back to the beginning command we saw back in verse 14 where he said, stand firm urgently, therefore, and then he begins to delineate the pieces of armor. Then now he has the second command at the beginning of verse 17, take, and this last piece of equipment, the sword of the spirit. And beloved, God commands us to be a people of the word. 
And this is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit that calls us unto salvation and the word of God that builds us up in our salvation, calls us unto salvation, our justification. It is the word of God that God uses to put new life in a sinner's heart so that the holy righteous God can declare a guilty person pardoned by virtue of the work of Christ. And it is our sanctification, uh, the progress of our growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is absolutely essential to both. Beloved, your Bible is necessary for coming to faith. It is necessary for continuing in the faith and in the immediate context of this holy war and the armor of God, it is necessary for contending for the faith. That is the point of Paul at this point in the end. So first, beloved, understand this. Your sword, the word of God, cuts profoundly. It pierces deeply. This is its utility, its usefulness. This isn't a mere ornamental book to be put up on the mantle of our fireplace. This is a book that we are to read, to study, to memorize, to understand. And he begins by saying, and the sword. Now, the sword, there were two different swords in a Roman audience's mind. There was a long, large sword that would be maybe three to four feet long that a soldier or fighter would have to use both hands and would swing in wide, sweeping, arcing, strokes. But that's not the sword that he's using here. This is a Machaira sword. It's a small, shorter sword. Could be anywhere from maybe eight inches of blade length to about 18 inches. The historian Josephus said that this short-handled Machaira sword was short enough to chop fruit, but large enough to kill. For example, in The Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Septuagint, you will remember God commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac and take him up to the mountain and to sacrifice him. Of course, God intervened before he was to do that, but it was a test of Abraham's faith and a lesson of God providing. But in Genesis 22, verse 6, you'll read the words, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand, the fire, and the knife. And they use that same word. So the point here is this sword that God is describing as the sword of the Spirit is to be used by the soldier, the Roman soldier, in close hand-to-hand combat. Now, if you've been here through the, our whole study of the armor of God, you may remember that when we look at this war, this war is not fought mano a mano. This war is a corporate battle of the family of God, the church of God, the body of Christ. You and I, we are not in this alone. So the war is not mano a mano, but the individual battle, the individual skirmish, your sword fight is mano a mano. And, beloved, you need to know how to use it because your sword cuts profoundly. It pierces deeply. A companion verse to Ephesians 6, 17 is Hebrews, well-known Hebrews 4, verse 12, where the author of Hebrews writes, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts 
and intentions of the heart. So the picture there is a physical sword, even this short Machaira sword, can separate limb from body, can separate joint from marrow, can pierce down and pierce even into the heart. In the same way, the spiritual sword, the word of God, pierces deeply and cuts profoundly. And the spiritual point of the Apostle Paul and the spiritual point even of the, authors of, of the author of Hebrew is that there is nothing so concealed that the sword of the Spirit can't reveal. There is nothing hidden so deeply that the Word of God can't uncover and bring to the light of day. So we are to use the sword of the Spirit as God gives it to us. And I like what Steve Lawson said. He said, the word of God is a sword that pierces. It's not a Q-tip that tickles. <laughs> Beloved, God has given you the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, your Bible convicts and converts. It spawns conviction and conversion. It gives birth to it, engenders conviction and conversion. And it brings consolation. <clears throat> it brings consolation to the repentant. And Conversely, it brings condemnation to the unrepentant. And what's amazing, it's the same sword. It's the same sword. The same sword is suitable for every day, for every age, for every situation, for every man or woman. There's no other book like this. There's a 1921 Bible course, Genesis to Revelation, written by a man, William Grun, and this is what he said. He said, these are words written by kings, by emperors, by princes, by poets, by sages, by philosophers, by fishermen, statesmen, by men learned in the wisdom of Egypt and educated in the schools of Babylon and trained at the feet of rabbis in Jerusalem. It was written by men in exile, in the desert, in shepherd's tents, in green pastures and beside the still waters. Among its authors, we find a tax gatherer, a herdsman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. We find poor men, rich men, statesmen, preachers, captains, legislators, judges, and exiles. And, and behind every word is a divine author, God himself. And yet, end quote, end quote. And yet, beloved, you have the same weapon. You have the same weapon in your lap, in your hand, that your Lord Jesus used in the wilderness against the onslaught of the enemy. You have the same weapon in your hand that Peter wielded on the day of Pentecost. Some of us have been saved for a long time. Some among us are brand new believers. Some among us are very intelligent. Some of us are very simple. Some of you come from generations of godly believers some of you are like a brand plucked out of the fire as a sole believer and a sole recipient of God's grace, at least heretofore. But it's the same sword. We all have the same sword in our hand. I like what Paul Washer said by way of application of this truth. Paul Washer said, I don't preach one gospel to one group and then another gospel to another group because all men are the same. The God I preach is the same, and the gospel they need, the gospel we need, is the same. It's the same sword of the Spirit. And it is a sword, beloved, 
that pierces deeply and cuts profoundly. Secondly, beloved, the sword that you have in your hand wields powerfully. So we move from the utility, the usefulness, to the authority of the word of God and the veracity of the word of God. Uh, John MacArthur, in talking about the divine origin, which is the reason why it has the authority and the reason why it has the perfect veracity, MacArthur said, we have a sword not forged in human anvils or tempered by earthly fires. We have a spiritual sword of divine origin. And you see that in the text when Paul says, and a sword, and the sword, excuse me, and the sword of the spirit. Now, it's interesting, as we've been going through these elements of the armor, we've seen how Paul identifies the breastplate with righteousness and the shield with faith, and he identifies the helmet as salvation. But he takes a little turn here. He's not identifying the sword as the Holy Spirit. He's saying the sword comes from, originates from the Spirit. He's saying that this sword, this sole weapon that is part of the panoply of the armor of God he's given to you is Spirit-originated, Spirit-enabled, and Spirit-taught. Your sword, beloved, wields powerfully because it's the sword of the Spirit. It is God made and God supplied. Another point of contrast we saw looking at Isaiah 59, verse 17, that Christ himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, pictured by the prophet Isaiah, wore both the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. So that was God-forged, God-furnished, and God-worn armor. This is God-wielded weapon. The sword of the Spirit is wielded by God himself. In Isaiah 49, verse 2, God says, He has made God the Son, speaking of God the Father, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Or Hosea 6, verse 5, God said, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Or looking forward to the future when Christ comes back, not as a lamb to be slain, but as a lion to slay, as a conquering lion. In Revelation 19, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations. Beloved, your Bible, your sword is as strong and as pure as God who made it. And your word of God is as strong and as pure as the God who wrote it. That's why, for example, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, all scripture is theopneustos. All scripture is God-breathed. When we think of the word inspire, it's not the kind of watered-down understanding in modern English we have of inspired and inspiration, but all Scripture is literally breathed out by God. So, all the words in this book were written by men, by kings and peasants and rabbis and teachers. And it was written in palaces and in deserts and in pastures in different circumstances across thousands of years of time, yet... It is inspired, and it is the word of God as well as the word of men. And we know that the word of God does the work of God in the child of God by the spirit of God. And that is, again, why Paul says the sword of the spirit. 
And when we think of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works cum verbum, per verbum, and, but never, ever sine verbum. The Holy Spirit works with the Word of God. He works according to the Word of God, but never apart from the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. And, beloved, this sword is powerful. So you wield it powerfully, not because it's a power in and of you, but it's a power in and of the weapon which you wield. Charles Hodge had these choice words. He says the only offensive weapon of the Christian is the sword of the Spirit. That is the Word of God. It's that which God has spoken, His Word, the Bible. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the wisdom of God and the power of God. It has a self-evidencing light. It commends itself to reason and to conscience. It has the power not only of truth, but of divine truth. It puts to flight all the powers of darkness. And the Christian finds this to be true in his individual experience. It dissipates doubts. It dries away fears. And it delivers him or her from the power of Satan, end quote. Beloved, you know that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The indwelling Holy Spirit is infinitely greater than he who is in the world, Satan. And greater is what is in your lap right now than he who is in the world. That is what God wants you and I to understand from all of Scripture and from this specific armor of God in Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul, for example, was talking about the spiritual warfare and employing this weapon when he wrote to the disobedient, immature church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, where he wrote to the church, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, okay, we're, we're destroying fortresses. What are these fortresses, Paul? Well, he answers it in verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of God. Of Christ. So you see it's going both outwards and inwards. We're destroying every lofty thing, thing, every flaming missile that comes from the enemy, every lie, every accusation, every temptation that comes from the outside. That's the first part of what he says there. And we are taking every thought captive. It's turned inward. So while we understand that there is a fearsome enemy that Paul brings out for us in Ephesians 6, verse 12, with the devil and his minions. The greater battle, the greater struggle for the Christian on this side of glory is against the flesh, against this body of death. And that's why we take every thought, the lie, the accusation, the false doctrine, the ear-tickling sermons and teaching, the tantalizing allurements and temptations, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And the sword of the Spirit carves them away from us. Beloved, the power is in the word. That's why you don't hear coming from this pulpit endless personal stories. It's not, you don't hear comedy routines. 
Uh, we just finished our, the latest installment of our wonder, wonderful uh, membership ministry. And as those of you who have gone through it, you know, you ha- there's an elder that comes at the end of each class. So I went at the end of last class, and I was having fellowship with the people and talking. And I can't remember who it was, but one of the beloved people there said, you know, I, I think you're really funny. And I think we immediately expelled him from the membership process. But... <laughs> <laughs> But, beloved, the, the point back on track here, beloved, your awesome responsibility as a swordsman of God, as a swordswoman of God, should always humble you, but never paralyze you. Because your power is not in yourself. Your power comes from the word of God. And in the context of a magnificent historical demonstration of the power of the word. There's a story in the biography of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers in the English language. He was a preacher in 18th century England. He even came over and preached in America as well. And there was a man named John Thorpe who was a bitter antagonistic enemy of Whitfield. Thorpe was part of what was called the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club was an 18th century club, it was a high society club of pagans, thugs, and ruffians that absolutely detested Christianity. They loved immorality. They would go in the street and publicly have tremendous vile demonstrations of utterly blasphemous practices as well as going into quiet locations and have secret grotesque acts of gross immorality. And What happened with Whitfield is the Hellfire Club hated Whitfield because of the powerful way in which God was using him as he preached the word of God. And mockery followed Whitfield everywhere he went. Uh, You may have heard of Whitfield before. Maybe you did or didn't know this, but he was severely cross-eyed. And people would mock him every chance they had. And Whitfield would handle these mockery and these accusations magnanimously, magnanimously and courageously and just to continue to preach the word of God. But there are always these thugs, the members of the Hellfire Club, who would oppose him. One time in particular, when Whitfield came to the town of Rothertham in central England, John Thorpe and his gang of thugs decided to make a burlesque and a mockery of Whitfield in a crowded pub. And what they decided to do was they would have a contest to see who could do the best job of mocking Whitfield. And four men stepped forward. Thorpe was one of them. And the idea was they would just open up the Bible and find a text and then try to imitate in a mocking, ridiculing fashion George Whitfield. Uh, Thorpe actually went last. So he saw and heard the mocking of the first three as they performed. And nothing was sacred blasphemy, foul language, and base immorality flowed freely. Everyone was laughing hysterically, and when Thorpe's turn came, he came up, and the first thing he did was he crossed his eyes, and then people started laughing. And then the Bible was open, and it went to Luke chapter 13, and Thorpe's eyes immediately went to verse 3, where Luke 13, 3 says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Thorpe began to read the text aloud, fully intending to deliver a message mocking Whitfield's style. But as soon as he read the text aloud, according to Whitfield's biographer, which was written some years later, this is what the biographer said, quote, Thorpe's mind was affected in a very extraordinary manner. The sharpest pangs of conviction now seized him, and his conscience denounced tremendous vengeance upon his soul. 
And as he began to preach on that text, the whole pub fell silent. Thorpe said later that his mind was filled with sudden insight on the text, and he delivered a full sermon on it, not as mocking, but with full, genuine gospel passion. End quote. You see, beloved, the word of God had pierced John Thorpe's heart. And when he finished his sermon, he sat down trembling and brokenhearted. As Whitfield's biographer noted later that instead of entertaining the company, that sermon spread a visible depression. And by the time Thorpe finished speaking, there was a sullen gloom upon every countenance, end quote. Thorpe himself later testified that he read the text. As he read the text, it gripped his conscience. He believed the gospel and gave his heart to Christ right there in that pub. You see, he had meant to taunt and ridicule, but he was converted because the power of the word of God penetrated his soul and cut him to the heart. And the epilogue is Thorpe actually became a preacher and an evangelist himself, and he often accompanied Whitfield on his travels. Because, and he was used particularly because Thorpe knew in a very unique manner the power of the word of God to penetrate even the most hardened heart. Beloved, your commanding officer has given you a sword. You don't have the option. I don't have the option to think, you know what? I think I'm going to poke them with my butter knife rather than cut them with the sword of the Spirit. So, beloved, your sword cuts profoundly. It is wielded powerfully, and, and it, thirdly, adjudicates precisely. It judges precisely. You apply it with precision. So we move from utility and then from its authority and veracity now to the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. And Paul says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this precision, this precise way in which God instructs us to use this sword, that God instructs us to use this word, is brought out in two ways. The first, we've already covered, where Paul uses that short, macari, more precise sword, rather than the longer, larger, broad sword. But the second way is when he says it's the word of God, he doesn't use the normal Greek word logos, that you might think that is more usually the word behind the word word. He uses the word rhema. The word rhema is a more specific. It is describing a particular and specific message. And it is the worma, the unique and particular message of the word of God. Because God reveals himself. And beloved, when we think of God and his love and his blessing upon us, the first and most fundamental way in which God demonstrated his love for us and blessed us after he created us, after he created Adam and Eve, the first and fundamental way in which God showed his love toward them was by speaking to them. That is the blessing God gives us because a right understanding of God for man, for you and for me, we cannot get a right understanding of God merely by investigation. We need revelation. God must speak to us if we are to know who he is and know who we are. If we are to, with our hearts, say to God, Lord, show me yourself. Show me myself and then show me my Savior. 
God must speak to us. That's why, for example, God told the nation of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Or in Psalm 119, verse 98, uh, this one in the context of battle, the psalmist says, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. So God speaks, God reveals himself in a general overarching fashion, such as the logos of the word of God. Uh, for example, John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, thy word is truth, thy logos is truth. The general overarching gospel message that is part of all of scripture. But the word here, the word rhema is a definite or particular saying for a definite or particular situation. For example, in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is at the end of verse 12, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart is able to judge. That's why we say that the sword adjudicates precisely. Or the word rhema, John the Baptist, John had a very unique and very particular message as the one that would be a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah and the prophecy in Malachi. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, it says, the word of God came to John, the rhema of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Or Christ, the greatest example, the example par excellence of using the sword of the Spirit in a mano-a-mano combat with Satan was Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. And in Matthew 4, verse 4, you'll read the words where Christ says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word, every rhema that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every jot and tittle, every verse, every passage, every chapter, every book. Or the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church in Rome, the great passage, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, hearing by the rhema of God, beloved. Or more and more illustrations, historical illustrations. We just talked about John Thorpe and how Luke 13, verse 3, that particular word for that particular point in time with that particular man, God used to bring him unto salvation. Spurgeon, when Spurgeon was 15 and on that snowstormy day when he went into that primitive Methodist church and heard that preacher the way Spurgeon said, that just stupid preacher, preach on and elaborate Isaiah 45 verse 22. Look to me and live. God used that particular word to bring Charles Spurgeon to salvation. Or Martin Luther, Romans 1 verse 17, the righteous man shall live by faith. Beloved, the word of God adjudicates precisely. You can, we must apply it precisely. We are to study and show ourselves approved so that we do understand the overarching gospel message and by God's grace and mercy, we can bring specific scripture to bear in a discerning fashion with the right word for the right point in time. The Plymouth Brethren missionary and preacher H.P. Barker in the 20th century had a magnificent illustration to describe our reaction to the word as we would hear it, as we would study it, as we would understand it. And he talked about 
a butterfly, a botanist, and a bee. He said he was in a garden, and he was in the garden looking, and he saw this beautiful butterfly. He says the butterfly was beautiful. It would land on a flower and then flutter to another flower and then over to another. And only for a second or two, this beautiful butterfly would sit, and it would then move on. It would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could, but derived absolutely no benefit. The butterfly derived absolutely no benefit from the flower. And then Barker says that I saw a botanist. And the botanist had a big notebook under his arm and a great big magnifying glass. He would lean over a certain flower and look for a long time and then write notes in his notebook. He was there for hours writing notes. And eventually he closed his notes and he tucked the large magnifying glass under his arm in his glass in his pocket and he walked away. But then Barker says the third thing I noticed was a bee, just a little bee. The bee would land on a flower and it would sink down deep into the flower and it would extract all the nectar and pollen it could carry. Barker says the bee went in empty every time and came out full. And then he gives this application. He says, so it is with so many people who approach the Bible. There are those who just flutter from lovely sermon to lovely sermon, from class to class, fluttering here, fluttering there, bringing nothing and gaining nothing. What a nice feeling. Then there are the spiritual botanists who take copious notes, who make sure all the vowel pointings are correct, but they don't have the capacity to draw anything out of the flowers. It's just pure academics. Then there are the spiritual bees who draw out of every precious flower all that is there to be able to make honey that makes them so blessed to those around them. Beloved, that is the beautiful illustration. That is why there is such tremendous focus on the Bible and all the ministries of Santan Bible Church and all the ministries of any Bible-believing church. At an elders meeting, I think it was our last elders meeting, uh, Tim Palin shared that he made a calculation. He said there's about 20 to 25 hours of Bible teaching from various platforms at Santan Bible Church. So what I do here every Sunday morning is maybe 4 or 5% of the total. There's the Bible hour through the Bible class, which in the first hour is in Romans. There's the Bible hour Christian living class taking place right now with doctrines of grace. Josh Lindsay is teaching the youth ministry through Galatians. Uh, David and Lupinetti and Mike Frazee are teaching Ecclesiastes in the Crossroads Young Married Group. Chris Southern's home group is he's going through 1 Corinthians. Barry Kutz is teaching through 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Kyle T.C. is going through Romans. Lon and Earl are teaching through John. In our men's midweek Thursday morning study, Scott Mom is leading us through John. Uh, the Generations Outreach at the Retirement Home in Agritopia, the faithful men right now are going verse by verse through 1 John. And then Earl Shivers with our wonderful new summit ministry of the more mature believers is going through Philippians. There's Brent Frazee's Young Married's Home Group, Scott's Sermon Review Home Group, Men's Big Breakfast and all the table talks, all the women's ministry, the refined ministries, and all the children's ministry. Be Beloved, because it is the word of God to be applied with precision, and it's saved. And know this, God will show you and I how to use it 
precisely as we grow in Christ. So the word cuts profoundly. It is wielded powerfully. It adjudicates precisely. Lastly, beloved, your sword quickens permanently. So we move from the utility, the authority, and veracity to the perspicuity and clarity, and finally, to the vitality, the vitality of the word of God. Beloved, what you have in your hands is not a dead letter. It is a living word. It gives life. It's the word of God as an invasive power that gets inside of you. It's the spotlight of scripture that shines into the darkest, most recesses of a human heart. In Hebrews 4.12, as we read before, he says the word is living and active. Or the way King James puts it, the word of God is quick and powerful. You see, beloved, the Bible, God uses the words of faith to renew the heart of the spiritually dead. And that's what we studied and saw already in Ephesians back in chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul writes that God made us alive together with Christ. Or the way King James puts it, God has quickened us together with Christ. And in the ancient old English word quicken wasn't talking about speed. It was talking about giving life, making alive, vivifying. Hence, that's why we say the sword of the Spirit quickens permanently. Now, if this week, maybe this week you did what we're supposed to do. We did what we're supposed to do, which is to take the devotion guide that was handed out last Sunday and go through the words so that when we sing them, we own them. And if we did that, you will see the wonderful hymn, And Can It Be, which we're going to sing at the end of this message, at the end of our service. And you may have came across the wonderful stanza where the words say, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. And then these words, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Now, that's not talking about the speed of light. That's talking about the life-giving power of God where the Holy Spirit works with the Word of God to bring life where there was no life before. And then the end of the stanza that we'll sing gives the application of what that new life brings. The words say, I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Beloved, that is the power of the word of God that you have in your hands. And what's amazing is this is a weapon. The sword is a weapon. It's a weapon designed by God to give life, to heal, to resurrect. This is a sword that is life-bearing and life-giving. And beloved, nobody ever became agile with the sword of the Spirit merely by listening to someone preach or listening to someone teach it. It is only when you go out in the front lines of the battle, whether it's in church, whether it's in the neighborhood, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your school, when you start wielding the sword of the Spirit, then you'll have a greater sense of appreciation and understanding of even the previous five pieces of armor. Your faith will grow stronger. Your righteousness will intensify. Your trust in the helmet of salvation that you enjoy in Christ will blossom and be strengthened that much more so that we can 
say to the Lord, Lord, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide and may your glory be our goal so that we will be as a church, that we will be as an individual preoccupied with the word because we want to be more preoccupied with the one to whom the word points. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We thank you, God, for giving us every, for opening our eyes and removing the scales of darkness so that we can look at your creation and see the beauty that you have made so that we can hear the pricks of our conscience come and filter them through and understand them through the pages of Scripture and that we can come to know you and that we can come to know ourselves and we can then be pointed to you as our Savior. Dear God, bless the men and women in this room for your glory, for their eternal joy, and for anyone here this morning that is not following you as Lord and Savior by faith alone. Dear God in heaven, draw them to the truth in your word. Bring them to the gospel message which can make them born again and bring something new where old things are passed away so that they can enjoy the full forgiveness of their sin even now and be with you forever in heaven for your glory, for their eternal joy. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, and for your glory and for your honor that we pray and that we sing. Amen.